Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, The Isabels, Chapter Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter Two. After another armed struggle, decided by Montero's victory of Rio Seco, had been added to the tale of civil wars, the honest men, as Don Jose called them, could breathe freely for the first time in half a century. The five-year mandate law became the basis of that regeneration, the passionate desire and hope for which had been the elixir of everlasting youth for Don Jose Avellanos. And when it was suddenly and not quite unexpectedly endangered by that brute Montero, it was a passionate indignation that gave him a new lease of life, as it were. Already at the time of the President-Dictator's visit to Sulaco, Moraga had sounded a note of warning from Santa Marta about the War Minister. Montero and his brother made the subject of an earnest talk between the Deputy President and the Nestor-inspirer of the party. But Don Vincente, a doctor of philosophy from the Cordova University, seemed to have an exaggerated respect for military ability, whose mysteriousness, since it appeared to be altogether independent of intellect, imposed upon his imagination. The victor of Rio Seco was a popular hero. His services were so recent that the president-dictator quailed before the obvious charge of political ingratitude. Great regenerating transactions were being initiated, the fresh loan, a new railway line, a vast colonisation scheme. Anything that could unsettle the public opinion in the capital was to be avoided. Don José bowed to these arguments and tried to dismiss from his mind the gold-laced portent in boots, and with a sabre made meaningless now at last, he hoped, in the new order of things. Less than six months after the president-dictator's visit, Sulaco learned with stupefaction of the military revolt in the name of national honour. The Minister of War, in a barrack square allocution to the officers of the artillery regiment he had been inspecting, had declared the national honour sold to foreigners. The dictator, by his weak compliance with the demands of the European powers for the settlement of long-outstanding money claims, had showed himself unfit to rule. A letter from Moraga explained afterwards that the initiative, and even the very text, of the incendiary allocution came in reality from the other Montero, the ex-guerrillero, the Comandante de Plaza. The energetic treatment of Dr. Monningham, sent for in haste to the mountain, who came galloping three leagues in the dark, saved Don Jose from a dangerous attack of jaundice. After getting over the shock, Don Jose refused to let himself be prostrated. Indeed, better news succeeded at first. The revolt in the capital had been suppressed after a night of fighting in the streets. Unfortunately, both the Monteros had been able to make their escape south to their native province of Entremontes. The hero of the Forest March, the victor of Rio Seco, had been received with frenzied acclamation in Nicoya, the provincial capital. The troops in garrison there had gone to him in a body. The brothers were organising an army, gathering malcontents, sending emissaries primed with patriotic lies to the people and with promises of plunder to the wild llaneros. 
Even a Monterist press had come into existence, speaking oracularly of the secret promises of support given by our great sister republic of the north against the sinister land-grabbing designs of European powers, cursing in every issue the miserable Riviera, who had plotted to deliver his country bound hand and foot for a prey to foreign speculators. Sulaco, pastoral and sleepy, with its opulent campo and the rich silver mine, heard the din of arms fitfully in its fortunate isolation. It was, nevertheless, in the very forefront of the defence with men and money, but the very rumours reached it circuitously, from abroad even, so much was it cut off from the rest of the Republic, not only by natural obstacles, but also by the vicissitudes of the war. The Monteristos were besieging Caeta, an important postal link. The overland couriers ceased to come across the mountains, and no muleteer would consent to risk the journey at last. Even Bonifacio on one occasion failed to return from Santa Marta, either not daring to start, or perhaps captured by the parties of the enemy raiding the country between the Cordillera and the capital. Monterist publications, however, found their way into the province, mysteriously enough, and also Monterist emissaries preaching death to aristocrats in the villages and towns of the Campo. Very early at the beginning of the trouble, Hernandez, the bandit, had proposed, through the agency of an old priest of a village in the wilds, to deliver two of them to the Ribierist authorities in Tonoro. They had come to offer him a free pardon and the rank of colonel from General Montero in consideration of joining the rebel army with his mounted band, no notice was taken at the time of the proposal. It was joined, as an evidence of good faith, to a partition praying the Sulaco Assembly for permission to enlist with all his followers in the forces then being raised in Sulaco for the defence of the five-year mandate of regeneration. The petition, like everything else, had found its way into Don Jose's hands. He had showed to Mrs Gould these pages of dirty greyish rough paper, perhaps looted in some village store, covered with the crabbed, illiterate handwriting of the old padre, carried off from his hut by the side of a mud-walled church to be the secretary of the dreaded Salteador. They had both bent in the lamplight of the Gould drawing-room over the document containing the fierce and yet humble appeal of the man against the blind and stupid barbarity turning an honest ranchero into a bandit. A postscript of the priest stated that, but for being deprived of his liberty for ten days, he had been treated with humanity and the respect due to his sacred calling. He had been, it appears, confessing and absolving the chief and most of the band, and he guaranteed the sincerity of their good disposition. He had distributed heavy penances, no doubt, in the way of litanies and fasts, but he argued shrewdly that it would be difficult for them to make their peace with God durably till they had made peace with men. Never before, perhaps, had Hernandez's head been in less jeopardy than when he petitioned humbly for permission to buy a pardon for himself and his gang of deserters by armed service. He could range afar from the wastelands protecting his fastness unchecked, because there were no troopers left in the whole province. The usual garrison of Sulaco had gone south to the war, with its brass band playing the Bolivar March on the bridge of one of the OSN Company's steamers. 
The great family coaches drawn up along the shore of the harbour were made to rock on the high leathern springs by the enthusiasm of the senoras and the senoritas standing up to wave their lace handkerchiefs as lighter after lighter, packed full of troops, left the end of the jetty. Nostromo directed the embarkation under the superintendence of Captain Mitchell, red-faced in the sun, conspicuous in a white waistcoat, representing the allied and anxious goodwill of all the material interests of civilization. General Barrios, who commanded the troops, assured Don Jose on parting that in three weeks he would have Montero in a wooden cage drawn by three pairs of oxen, ready for a tour through all the towns of the Republic. And then, Senora, he continued, bearing his curly, iron-grey head to Mrs Gould in her landau, and then, Senora, we shall convert our swords into ploughshares and grow rich. Even I myself, as soon as this little business is settled, shall open a fundacion on some land I have on the Llanos and try to make a little money in peace and quietness. Senora, you know, all Costaguana knows, what do I say? This whole South American continent knows that Pablo Barrios has had his fill of military glory. Charles Gould was not present at the anxious and patriotic send-off. It was not his part to see the soldiers embark. It was neither his part, nor his inclination, nor his policy. His part, his inclination and his policy were united in one endeavour to keep unchecked the flow of treasure he had started single-handed from the reopened scar in the flank of the mountain. As the mine developed, he had trained for himself some native help. There were foremen, artificers and clerks, with Don Pepe for the gobernador of the mining population. For the rest, his shoulders alone sustained the whole weight of the Imperium in Imperio, the great Gould concession, whose mere shadow had been enough to crush the life out of his father. Mrs Gould had no silver mine to look after. In the general life of the Gould Concession, she was represented by her two lieutenants, the doctor and the priest, but she fed her woman's love of excitement on events whose significance was purified to her by the fire of her imaginative purpose. On that day she had brought the Avianos, father and daughter, down to the harbour with her. Amongst his other activities of that stirring time, Don Jose had become the chairman of a patriotic committee which had armed a great proportion of troops in the Sulaco command with an improved model of a military rifle. It had been just discarded for something still more deadly by one of the great European powers. How much of the market price for second-hand weapons was covered by the voluntary contributions of the principal families and how much came from those funds Don Jose was understood to command abroad, remained a secret which he alone could have disclosed. But the Ricos, as the populace called them, had contributed under the pressure of their Nestor's eloquence. Some of the more enthusiastic ladies had been moved to bring offerings of jewels into the hands of the man who was the life and soul of the party. There were moments when both his life and his soul seemed overtaxed by so many years of undiscouraged belief in regeneration. He appeared almost inanimate, sitting rigidly by the side of Mrs Gould in the Landau, with his fine old clean-shaven face of a uniform tint as if modelled in yellow wax, shaded by a soft felt hat, the dark eyes looking out fixedly. 
Antonia, the beautiful Antonia, as Miss Avianos was called in Sulaco, leaned back facing them, and her full figure, the grave oval of her face with full red lips, made her look more mature than Mrs Gould with her mobile expression and small erect person under a slightly swaying sunshade. Whenever possible, Antonia attended her father. Her recognised devotion weakened the shocking effect of her scorn for the rigid conventions regulating the life of Spanish-American girlhood. And in truth, she was no longer girlish. It was said that she often wrote state papers from her father's dictation and was allowed to read all the books in his library. At the receptions, where the situation was saved by the presence of a very decrepit old lady, a relation of the Corbelins, quite deaf and motionless in an armchair, Antonia could hold her own in a discussion with two or three men at a time. Obviously she was not the girl to be content with peeping through a barred window at a cloaked figure of a lover ensconced in a doorway opposite, which is the correct form of Costaguana courtship. It was generally believed that with her foreign upbringing and foreign ideas, the learned and proud Antonia would never marry, unless indeed she married a foreigner from Europe or North America, now that Sulaco seemed on the point of being invaded by all the world. End of part second, The Isabels, chapter two.